We're wrapping up Colossians tonight, and Paul has some things to say about evangelism in tonight's chapter. And so I'm going to read our text for tonight, which is Colossians 4, 2 through 18. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, it'll be in Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these weeks that we have had in Colossians. Um, We thank you for drawing us closer to Jesus through your word. And we pray that tonight as we talk about evangelism, as we talk about spreading the good news of the gospel and about being everyday evangelists in the context of our lives, we pray that we would receive your word fully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last house that Dawn and I lived in before we moved to Kentucky was a rental house, and it had a basement straight out of a horror film. It was an absolute nightmare of a place. Never wanted to go there. And shortly after we moved into the house, we had a tornado warning. And it was emergency, you know, seek shelter immediately. And so kind of by instinct, we headed toward the basement, and I pulled up the door that looked down on the stairs going in and saw the cobwebs and saw the shadows and had no idea what was lurking in the shadows and said, I'm gonna take my chances up here. I think I'll do better with the tornado. And in the basement, there was a water softener that was there because we had hard water in the house. And every so often I would have to lug big bags of salt down into the basement. And on one occasion, I noticed that the machine was using too much salt. And so I had to call a repairman to come out to fix it. So there we were, the repairman and I, in in this damp and dirty basement, talking about the water softener. He explained to me the problem with the calibration, and he fiddled with the timer, and he talked a little bit more, and I was, you know, kind of paying attention. I just wanted him to fix it. And then he stopped and he said, I lost my dad last week. 
And you can't anticipate anything like that. But what would be going through your head if that were to happen to you? What is evangelism? Is it a thing that we do? You know, I am now going to do evangelism. Did you share the gospel with anyone today? No, I did not do the thing today. When an opportunity like the one in my basement presents itself, what is the opportunity for? Is it to do the thing? Or is it to do something else? If you know Bill Hughes and LCF, you know that he's someone who loves to share his faith with others. Whether he's interacting with a server at a restaurant or just meeting strangers, he has a knack. He has, he has an intuition for where to take the conversation and how to make the person feel at ease. And for Bill, evangelism is not a mode that he has to switch into. It flows effortlessly out of his life. As far as spiritual gifts go, evangelism is not one of mine. I don't have a knack for turning ordinary conversation into a spiritual conversation. When I go to the mechanic, I'm not thinking about how to share the gospel with him. And so I don't tend to think of myself as an evangelist. And maybe you can relate. When your home group leader plans for your home group to picnic in the park and share the gospel with people who come by, you hope that it rains like crazy and just rains the thing out. Or you hope to get a flat tire on the way. Or you hope for COVID or something that's going to make sure that you're not at the park trying to share the gospel with people that you don't know. Because for you, evangelism is a thing to do. And it's like trying to make a sale. And you're not a salesman. And you're pretty sure that they don't want the product anyway, because if they did, wouldn't they have already become a Christian by now? Well, if you can relate to that, then I have some good news for you. And it's this passage tonight in Colossians chapter four. Paul has direction for us on how we think about evangelism and how to live evangelistically, how to be everyday evangelists. And so I just ask you to put everything that you think you know about evangelism to the side for a little bit, whatever feelings that you have about it, and receive these words in Colossians afresh. So picking up verse two, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So I have six points tonight. I really wanted to have seven, but there just wasn't a seventh, so I, had, I got stuck with six. So here's the first one. God opens the doors. God opens the doors. Paul prays that God would open the door for him to declare the mystery of Christ. And remember that Paul is in prison. If I were Paul and I was praying for a door to be open, I'd be praying for the door to the jail cell to be open so that I could just saunter right on out and be free. But for all the effort that we put into sharing the gospel, it's God who opens the doors. In the book of Revelation, Jesus has this message for the church at Philadelphia. He says, it says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. 
So Jesus tells this church that even in the midst of tribulation and even in the midst of persecution, he has opened a door for the gospel to be heard and believed. At the beginning of this letter to the Colossians, Paul said that the gospel is increasing and it's bearing fruit all over the world. He said, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, does, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So the the gospel has come to Colossae and Epaphras is laboring in the work and Paul is laboring in the work. But it's God who's throwing open the doors for the gospel to be heard and believed. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So no matter how much effort we put in or how well we can explain the gospel or how well we can use technology, if God doesn't open the door for the gospel, it will remain closed. And that's why Paul opens this section by saying, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Praying for God to open doors keeps us from making evangelism just about strategy and technique and doing the right things. But that's not typically our problem. I think a lot of us know it's not about strategy and it's not about technique. Our problem comes, we don't pray for opportunities because we don't really want them to come. And we would maybe like it if somebody else who's more talented at that, somebody else who's more enthusiastic and eager would do that, and we would not have to. But Paul will have none of it. He says to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And this is my second point. We are to pray for opportunities. We're to watch for opportunities and we're we're to act upon opportunities. Paul lays it out very simply. Pray, watch, act. And the phrase in verse 5 where he says, making the best use of the time, literally means to buy up or to buy out something. To buy up or to buy out the opportunity that's before you. So when you sense that God has opened a door to connect with somebody, Paul says, buy up that opportunity. Maximize it as much as you possibly can. Don't just interact with casual interest and if something, you know, happens to further the conversation, great, if not you know, then it's fine, but ask, how can I fully give myself to this opportunity, this open door that God has put before me? And so sometimes, if you're going to do that, if you're really going to buy up the opportunity, sometimes you have to junk your plans. Sometimes you have to change what you were going to do. I was going to play pickleball, or I was going to work in my shop, or I was going to hang out in the larger social circle that I was in, but now I'm in this conversation with somebody who's asking pretty deep questions, And so I'm going to stay right here and see where it goes. Sometimes you have to go places that are out of your comfort zone and talk to people who are completely unlike you. You know, UCF folks last week ran a lemonade stand on campus. And in in the time that they spent running the lemonade stand, they had the opportunity to interact with people who were completely unlike them and have conversations with them and listen to them. And they had to be ready and willing to watch for those opportunities as they came. So how do you walk in wisdom toward outsiders? 
Paul continues, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And this brings me to my third point, which is relate to people where they are at. Relate to people where they are at. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders and knowing how to answer each person means relating to each person individually. Relating to them as individuals, which means discerning where that person is on the spectrum of faith. Some people are very close to taking refuge in Jesus, and and God has them right on the edge. And some people are very far away from it. Walking in wisdom means relating to people according to where they are at and discerning where they're at on that spectrum. We want people to get saved. We do. And we're right to want that for them. But many people who grew up with no Christian background whatsoever have no idea what they would be being saved from or what they would be being saved to. You know, in previous generations, you could ask somebody who's a non-Christian, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say, why should I forgive your sins and let you into heaven? What would you say? You know, a generation ago, people would have enough shared experience to understand what you meant by God and what you meant by sin and what you meant by heaven. They, you would have a shared experience in that. But for a lot of non-Christians today, there's not that shared experience, and it's not going to get you very far. They might say, why should I believe that there is a God at all? I don't believe that there's a God, so what you're saying doesn't make any sense. There's not much evidence for God in the world, and if there is a God, then he made a pretty crummy world. Or they might say, you know, sin and guilt are just things that religious people put on, on others so that they don't do anything that they really want to do. Or they might say, how do I know there's a heaven? And even if there is, how do I know that I even want to go there? So talking about sin and guilt and judgment doesn't connect with a lot of people because it's not in their experience. It's hard to feel guilty when everything is permitted by our culture. There's not much guilt going around. But you know what people can identify with in their shared experience? Loneliness, isolation, and despair. A lot of people can identify with that. Our world's moved increasingly online, and we weren't meant to live in an online world. And unfortunately, what gets curated for us in our online world rattles the most broken pieces of ourselves, like fear and envy and pride and lust and so on. But even in our offline world, we're surrounded by people who are alienated from themselves and alienated from each other. So where does the gospel connect with people who are suffering from loneliness and isolation and despair? Well, you could say it this way. In Jesus, God has made a new family, and you are welcome into it. In Jesus, God's made a new family, and you can come into it. All your experience of isolation and despair and and crushing loneliness, you can come into a new family. God wants you to come in. That's something they can experience before they begin to follow Jesus. You know, we really want to enroll people in Jesus's school of life, and we're right to do that because that's where real life is. But a lot of times for a lot of people, they need to go to the hospital first. They need to be around healthy people first. They need emergency care. And then they might be in a place where they can really hear Jesus's teaching and count the cost and make an informed decision to put their faith in him. 
And the church at its best is a place, it's that hospital environment where outsiders can be around healthy people and see what love and joy and peace actually looks like because it's probably in short supply where they live. If we can be that hospital environment that invites them in, be around us for a while, we're not trying to get you to cross the line right away, and then they can make an informed decision. So you might ask, well, what about sin, guilt, and judgment? Does that just never come up? Do we just never actually tell them that they're sinners? Do they just, you know, eventually just come in and we never mention that uncomfortable fact? Well, there are many doors into the church. And if somebody comes in through the door of the community of the church, they'll find out about sin and judgment eventually and their need for repentance. But we don't have to win every battle right away. And we can't win every battle right away. And when they become a Christian, remember, that's, it's D-Day, and Jesus will make advances throughout their life. And somebody can't be attracted to the life of Jesus and remain ignorant of their sinfulness for very long. They will become aware of their sinfulness and their brokenness. Does that make sense? All right, point number four. Remember who you represent. And this is a crucial point. I think it might be one of the most important things in tonight's sermon. Remember who you represent. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of the new country of Christ in you. And by our lives, we show what it's like to live in Christ. That's how God makes his appeal to outsiders through our lives. And as ambassadors, we live in, in our culture in a foreign country, in a way. And kingdom ways that we live in are not the customs of the land, not the customs of the culture and the world around us. So if we're going to share the gospel, we're often going to be put on the spot by people, and they're going to have hard questions for us. People will ask whether there's pain and suffering and evil in the world. People will ask about abuses and corruption throughout church history. People will ask how there's anything beyond the material world. Some people will have questions that come out of pain and anger and anguish from their lives. They may say ugly and false things about God. How do you speak gracious words full of salt then? Well, as ambassadors, we need to remember who we represent and what he is like, what Jesus is like. Dallas Willard says this, our apologetic, so our defense, our, our reason for why we believe, has to embody the message and the person that we want to communicate. Only with gentleness and respect will people be able to see, verify, and be persuaded to respond to what we have to say. In other words, we should only share the gospel if we can do so in the character and the manner of Jesus himself. And so when somebody lashes out at you or lashes out at God or lashes out at the church or their parents, believe it or not, Jesus can and will work with that in his time. And your gracious speech may simply affirm that they're a fellow human being who's in a lot of confusion and in a lot of pain. God doesn't need us to defend his honor. He's God. He's quite secure in who he is. We don't need to become hostile or defensive to defend him. We can speak gracious words even when the other person is not. 
And when we get heated with people, we tend to forget that they are precious people made in Jesus's image and that God loves them and wants to bring them into his family. Amen. One of the hardest things about doing evangelism is the feeling that we're supposed to personally make sure that people cross the line of faith. That if we share the gospel, then we need to close the deal. We need to get them to where they sign on the dotted line. And that's pressing for a particular kind of outcome. But if you read what Paul wrote here, he says to buy up the opportunities and give up good answers. He doesn't say that you have to get them across the line of faith. So here's what I think Paul would say to us. And this is point number five. Share the gospel all you want because you're in the gospel. You're in the gospel. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son. You're in the good news. It's not some theory that's outside you that you have to try to convince people to believe. You're living in it right now. So you can share the gospel all you want, liberally, joyfully, from the heart, and without the strings attached of making sure that people believe it. Maybe they will, because maybe the Father has them to where they can hear it and believe it. But maybe they won't. Maybe they won't believe it. And then when you see them again at some point, you can share the gospel with them again. And maybe they won't believe it then. And maybe you share the gospel with them another time. You can share what God is doing in the earth without having to have them sign on the dotted line. You're just sharing your redeemed and your joyful life, your free life in Christ. Does that make sense? And finally, point number six. Evangelism is a team sport. It's not something that we do on our own. I love Paul's greetings at the end of his letters. I think we learn so much about how Paul related to his fellow Christians. You know, we think of him as the Apostle Paul, the mighty Apostle Paul, the spiritual giant, writer of 13 books in our New Testament. And yet here he writes in verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. How big could a church in Nympha's house be? Probably not very big. It was probably quite small. And yet Paul goes out of his way to make sure that he gives greetings to her and the church that meets in her house. Paul's in prison. He can't go anywhere. He's stuck right where he is. He can't organize lemonade stands or pass out tracks or host stadium rallies or anything like that. He's stuck. But he's not inactive. He's hardly inactive. He sends Tychicus and Onesimus to Colossae with this letter, and he sends another letter to Philemon. He mentions that Mark is probably on his way before long. He sends a letter to the church at Laodicea, and he sends a direct word to this poor guy named Archippus, because it says, and say to Archippus, see to it that, or see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Can you imagine what that'd be like? Everybody in church coming up to you and saying, see that you fulfill the ministry that God has given you. I think that would probably prompt him to do the thing that he is supposed to do. Paul may be in prison and praying for open doors, but he's not standing still because he's working with others to help other people believe the gospel and grow in Christ-like maturity. So how does this come home for us? Well, a couple of questions to consider. Can we stop treating evangelism as doing the thing? And live as everyday evangelists who just let this flow effortlessly out of our lives.
Can we earnestly and consistently pray for God to open doors and then be watchful for opportunities? Can we relate to people where they are at and not where we want them to be? Can we remember who we represent and display his gentle and respectful character when we're under attack? Can we share the gospel liberally without pressuring the other to close the deal? And can we do this together as the outflow of our life together? Well, we can do all those things because as Paul assures us in the last phrase of this wonderful letter that we've had the privilege to study, God's grace is with us. Let's stand for prayer.